0: Thanks, Anthony, for reading God's word for us. And uh, let me just add my welcome to Anthony's. My name is Bill Gorman. I'm the campus pastor here at the Brookside campus. And especially if this is your first time with us this morning, uh, thanks so much for coming and walking through uh, the doors of this church building. I know uh, how hard that is to do over sabbatical. I visited a lot of other churches in the area and was reminded, again, of, of what a, a difficult thing it is to walk into a brand new church for the first time. So if you did that this morning, we're, we're grateful um, that you're with us and, uh, and hope that you have uh, a good experience here with us this morning. Um, We've been going through a series looking at the Psalms, learning how to pray uh, as we look at how the psalmists have recorded their prayers for us. And um, we need help in that. And so I want to even pray and ask for God's help to learn how to pray uh, better. So let's do that as we uh, prepare to look at Psalm 3 together. Father in heaven, thank you that you have given us these models of prayer Um, that you've given us these examples, that you let us listen in on this great uh, tradition of your people crying out to you um, because you have first uh, spoken to us. And I pray now as we look at Psalm 3 together uh, that your spirit would be at work illuminating our hearts and our minds um, and speaking to us and and guiding us. And we ask this in Jesus' name, uh, the true and living word, amen. Well, just about everybody, uh, whether they are progressive or conservative, whether they're irreligious or religious, whether they consider themselves a believer in God or not a believer in God, um, everybody at some point just about prays. And this is an interesting phenomenon. You see it almost universally. It's, It's not quite universal, but almost everyone at some point in their life prays. And why is this? Well, I think there are a lot of reasons we could talk about why we have a tendency as human beings to pray in some form or another. But I think a central reason that we pray is that we live in a world that is full of trouble and nothing motivates us to pray like trouble uh, and sometimes life overwhelms us, and we hope there is someone, anyone, uh, out there who can help. And, and few people capture this phenomenon better uh, than that great theologian, Jim Gaffigan. And so uh, take a look at this. But we, we've all been there, haven't we? And I mean, there's an element, and we're going to see it in this psalm, where, where God desires that. When we're in these places of helplessness, that we cry out to Him. That we, we don't like where we are, the job we're in, and we want out, and so we pray. We don't like who we are, and we want to change, and so we cry out. <laughs> You've probably all had that moment where you're driving down the road and you look in the rearview mirror and you see the flashing lights, and your pulse quickens, and you start to pray. Or when you forget that deadline at work, or there's that unexpected bill that comes in the mail. And so we pray. And Tim Keller, in his book on prayer, he surveys the extensive sociological and anthropological research that's been done on prayer, and he summarizes it this way. He writes, prayer is one of the most common phenomenon of human life. Though prayer is not literally universal, it is a global phenomenon, one inhabiting all cultures and involving the overwhelming majority of people at some point in their lives, Efforts, he writes, to find cultures, even very remote and isolated ones, without some form of religion and prayer have failed. There has always been some form of an attempt to communicate between human and divine realms. Nothing motivates us to pray like trouble. And so it's not a coincidence that as we turn to this first prayer in the Psalms we saw last week, the first two Psalms aren't really prayers. They're, they're like pillars. They're pillars of a gate that lead us on the pathway into the Psalms. And so it's not surprising that when we come to this first prayer in the Psalms, that it's, that it's brief, it's urgent, it's personal direct. It's a prayer of desperation. Because in one sense, trouble is the crucible for learning the language of prayer. Which makes sense, actually, because even as you think about who we are as human beings, when we're first born, we don't have language. We have to learn language. We talked a little bit about that last week. But but we can make one sound as babies, and that's we can cry out. We can wail. When we don't know how to say anything else, we know how to cry. Prayer, Eugene Peterson writes, is the language of people who know they're in trouble and who believe or hope that God can get them out. And let's be clear this morning, we're all in trouble. Whether whether we personally feel it this morning, you you may be feeling this morning, I don't feel like I'm in that much trouble, but we live in a world that is in trouble. Uh, Whether it's drought and wildfires in the western United States, whether it's conflict and war in the Middle East, chemical explosions in China, terrorist bombings in Bangkok devaluation of a particular currency that sends stock markets around the world tumbling. We live in a world of trouble. And as we turn to Psalm chapter 3, what we find is that nothing motivates us to pray like trouble. And it's in the midst of trouble, in the midst of crisis that David prays. Again, if Psalm 1 and 2 are sort of these these two posts that serve as a gateway into the life of prayer, Psalm 3 is the first step on that pathway, and it's a doozy. As we look at Psalm chapter 3 together this morning, we're going to see two conditions for prayer and one result. So we're going to see two conditions and then a result. But before we look at the first condition that we find in verses one and two, what we discover that in this psalm is that it's embedded in a story. If you notice, there's that little superscription above the psalms. We don't often read them. Uh, they're usually in a different sort of type. Uh, in, in the Bibles we have printed in the P's, they're in kind of all caps above the psalm. And this one says, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom. Editors later on, when they compiled the psalms into one collection, into one book, added these superscriptions. They're not part of the original psalm, but they give us an indication in some psalms of what was going on or, or maybe who wrote it or the kind of tradition in which they were written. In that superscription, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom his son, it puts us into the middle of a story. I mean, every psalm, indeed every one of our prayers, yours and mine, are in the context of a story. We just don't know all the stories of each psalm, but this one we do. This is just one of the stories of trouble that haunted King David's life. He was hunted by Saul, He committed murder and adultery, the psalm that Oliver read for us. He wrote after he was confessing his sin of murder and adultery. Later on in life, one of his sons, Amnon, rapes one of his daughters, Tamar. And then one of his other sons, Absalom, murders Amnon. And he thought your family was a mess. Um, Just look at David's and yours doesn't look that bad. Um, And and so now the superscription of this psalm, it brings us into another season of crisis and trouble in David's life. And you can read about this incident in 2 Samuel uh, chapters 15 and 16. But let me just tell you a little bit what happens in those chapters. David's later in his life, he's, he's in his 60s. He's been the king of Israel for around 30 years And at this point, his son Absalom, the one who had murdered his other son Amnon, crafts a conspiracy to overthrow David and seize the kingdom for himself. Absalom schemes and he undermines and he turns even David's closest advisors against him. Absalom convinces all of the pragmatists that existed in the kingdom that I'm going to be king eventually, so you might as well join with me now. It'll go better for you if you come with me today. And so as Absalom and his army march on Jerusalem to overthrow David and begin a civil war, David flees the city. We find this recorded in 2 Samuel 15. And the messenger came to David saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. And then David said to all of his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us and bring us to ruin and bring ruin on the city and strike it with the edge of the sword. David flees to save the life of himself and his men and to prevent a siege from destroying the city that he loves and it's as he's fleeing and then pursued by Absalom that that he writes the psalm that's the time that the psalm is about nothing motivates us to pray quite like trouble which brings us to the first condition of prayer which is helplessness The first condition for prayer that we see in this psalm is the sense of desperation that we realize I can't do this on my own. And and David articulates his helplessness in the Psalm in verses 1 and 2. He says, O Lord, how many are my foes, many are rising against me, many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. I don't know if you noticed that when Anthony was reading the passage earlier, even just then. Did you feel the repetition of the word many? It occurs three times here and it occurs again in verse 6 where David says, Many thousands of people have set themselves against me. And that word can mean numerous in number or large in size. And either way, the crushing weight of his predicament has left David feeling utterly helpless. Because you see, David isn't just surrounded by enemies. That would be bad enough. But they are actually staying to him, saying of him, the worst possible thing that you can say to anyone, and that is, David, not even God can save you. Not even God can rescue you. You see, his enemies are claiming that God is with them, that he is on their side, that God is with Absalom, and David, there is no hope for you. God has turned against you. There's no salvation for you. There's no rescue for you. And you feel it vividly in the narrative. Again, if you go back and read those chapters in 2 Samuel, you feel what David was up against. Listen to this part of 2 Samuel chapter 16. David's fleeing, he's in the wilderness, and he comes to some old supporters of Saul. When King David came to Bahrim, there came out the man of a family, the house of Saul. And as he came, he cursed continually, and he threw stones at David and all the servants of King David and all the people and all the mighty men who were at his right hand. And he said as he cursed, get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul in whose place you have reigned, and the Lord has given you a kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. He's saying God's on Absalom's side now. See, your evil is on you, and you are a man of blood. And can you imagine hearing that? You can just feel, hear the hate scraping through every syllable. See, there's no salvation for you, David. God's with Absalom. The great 19th century British preacher, Charles Spurgeon, reflecting on this verse, wrote this. He said, If all the trials which came from heaven, all the temptations which ascended from hell, all the crosses which arise from earth could be mixed and pressed together, they would not make a trial so terrible as that which is contained in this verse. He says, It's the most bitter of all afflictions to be led to the fear that there is no help for us in God. It doesn't get much more in trouble than that. And so David prays. It's at the most basic level prayer is is a recognition of our helplessness and a turning to God, however weak our trust in Him might be. And really, it's amazing how little it takes to bring us to a place of helplessness. Uh, I was reminded of this last week. For me, it's often home repair that takes me there. And, and last, uh, last weekend, um, our, our bathtub drain wasn't working right. Um, and and I was, so I was, I was painfully reminded of just how quickly um, we can begin to feel helpless. And, and so this drain wasn't, wasn't working right, but I thought there was something wrong with the, the stopper that, that you use to stop the tub and fill it. And I thought, well, this is no problem. I've got a screwdriver in YouTube. I can, I can fix this. Um, and so last Sunday afternoon after church, I started working on it. And and I went in totally confident in my abilities, uh, thinking this would be a a quick 15, 20-minute project. I'd adjust the stopper, it would be done. Uh, Two hours later, uh, having disassembled the entire drain fixture and dismantling uh, the stopper apparatus and then had plunging the tub vigorously, um, the water went from draining slowly to not at all. um, (laughs) From being partially clogged or broken to absolutely stopped. And so after about two hours, uh, I helplessly admitted defeat and started bailing the tub out with a bucket, a very small bucket that took forever, um, partially because the water was actually coming back up in the drain as I was dumping it out. Um, So we live in a world where where we know we're helpless, right? It takes something, a a home repair can bring us there. But we don't let anyone see our helplessness. We, We don't like not being able to do something. At least I don't. And it took a lot of courage for me and finally it was like mid-Monday morning when I finally called my friend Brian and asked him for help to fix my drain, which by the way he did and it works better than it ever has. Um, But I tried every possible means of fixing it on my own first. And I'm sure Brian could tell you I probably did some things that made it worse in the process. You see, when it comes to helplessness, So often we are like the Black Knight in Monty Python. If you remember that great scene in Monty Python, right? King Arthur comes and and the Black Knight's standing there and he lops off one arm, then the arm, then both legs. And and what does he say? So King Arthur says, now stand aside, worthy adversary. And the knight says, tis but a scratch. (laughs) A scratch? Your arm's off. No, it isn't. What's that then? Pause. I've had worse. And that's so often how we approach helplessness we sit there and we see that we're that we have much more than a flesh wound much more than a scratch and yet we're unwilling to acknowledge how desperate our situation is and this is really why helplessness is so vital to prayer because without it we simply don't pray You see, it's only those who can honestly see how helpless they are who can really be in a place of turning to God for more than just a a kind of a rubber stamp on their own solution to the problem. And this is one of the reasons, actually, I'm so excited about where we're going in in a second service here in September. The end of September, on September 7th, we're adding that second service. And I think we've come to a place as a congregation over almost three years now, where we've gotten really comfortable and it's good. We know how to do church on Sunday morning. And if we're honest with ourselves, we could probably do this with very little dependence on God, very little prayer. And I'm excited that we're going to be in stepping into a place where where we really have to depend on on God. Well, we, we always need that, but, but we lose, when we get confident in our own abilities, we tend not to pray. We tend to think we've got this under control. And so as we transition to a second service, there's going to be new unknowns, new challenges. In other words, new opportunities to feel helpless that will drive us to our knees in prayer. And that's a really good thing The Jewish author Isaac Beshevis Singer, who won the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1978, once said, I only pray when I'm in trouble, but I'm in trouble all the time, so I pray all the time. I think the times that I don't pray when I should pray, it's because I think I've got this. I've got this under control, that really I only pray when I feel like I can't do it. And most of us simply don't understand just how numerous, how great the enemies are that surround us as well as the enemies that are within us. We've probably all heard the saying at one time or another that that God only helps those who help themselves. Have you heard that? That is absolutely backward. Backward. God only helps those who realize they are utterly helpless and have turned and placed their entire trust and dependence on him. The Norwegian uh, Lutheran theologian, Ol Hansby, put it this way. He says, As far as I can see, prayer has been ordained only for the helpless. Prayer and helplessness are inseparable. Only he who is helpless can truly pray. But while helplessness is one of the conditions for prayer. It shows us our need for prayer. It drives us to prayer. There's actually a second condition that actually causes us to pray, and that's trust. You see, when we're pressed into a corner by helplessness, we cry out to God in in some sort of hope, in some sort of trust, no matter how weak or how strong that trust is, in the hope that He can do something about our situation. And this is what we see in verses 3 and 4. David says, But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. See, David, he pauses, and he calls to mind what makes God trustworthy. What makes him trustworthy? Reliable. And then he cries out to God. You'll, you'll notice that three times in this psalm, and then multiple times throughout the entire book of Psalms, there's this little word that pops up kind of off in the, the right hand margin of the psalm Selah. And this is a musical term, as best we can tell. We don't know exactly what it means, um, but it's probably an interlude that would slow down the praying or the singing of the psalm. And you see, it's, it's only when we sit in the helplessness for a moment, when we pause to realize how helpless we truly are that we're able to then turn to God and trust. And David recalls three things that that sort of poetically build on one another to lead him to a place of crying out to God. First, prayer looks out. David says, you, Lord, are my shield. You're the 365-degree protection around me, protecting me on all sides. You see, at this time in in the ancient Near East, as as David is writing this, the shield was the primary defensive armament. And because of its importance in battle, scholars explain that, that the shield became a metaphor for protection, not only in biblical literature, but in all ancient Near Eastern literature. And the Old Testament frequently calls God a shield when it's emphasizing God's ability to protect his people from their enemies. You see, a shield can transform a place of danger into a place of confidence, even a place of wonder. And several times I've had the opportunity to travel to northeastern Kenya to visit some of our ministry partners, the 11th Hour Network, Gitachu, and the team that he leads there. Doing church planting and evangelism in the the northeastern part of the country. And as we've traveled there, we've always spent some time on the way north driving through a game park where they have all of these animals just out in in the wild in these national parks. And to wander around a game park with all the lions and the cheetahs and the elephants and the baboons, it would be a terrifying place to just walk around out in the open. But in the confines of the shield of a heavy-duty land cruiser, it's some place that's amazing. But the difference is being inside of that big, heavy truck that's a shield. Second prayer looks deeper. David declares, God is his glory. He says, you, God, are my glory. That sounds like a really religious, churchy thing to say, but what in the world does that mean? What does it mean that when David says, God, you're my glory? Especially because we usually think about saying God, like we talk about God's glory, not God being our glory. What does that mean? Well, even though David has been rejected, and, and at this point he has, he's been rejected by his, his country, the vast majority of it, by his friends, his advisors, even by his family, they've all turned against him. What David is saying is that even though all these people have rejected me, I'm not utterly ruined. I'm not utterly ashamed because though that's not my glory. God is my glory. God is my confidence. He's what makes me valuable. He's what makes me worthy. He's what makes me good. You see, David knows that it's not his position. It's not his title. It's not his popularity that make him significant and valuable. It's God. And so, kids, if, if you've recently gone back to school, which I know many of you have in the last few weeks, you went, maybe you're at a new school, uh, maybe you're in a new grade, new teacher, new classroom, uh, and maybe you feel like you're totally on the margin. Maybe your friends from last year, they're not, they're not talking to you anymore. They went to camp with some other kids, and there's a new group, and you're on the outside. Maybe the teacher doesn't seem to like you. You're just feeling, gosh, like, I just don't feel worth anything. I don't, I don't feel valuable. I don't feel like I matter. Listen, you are made in the image of God. He's your glory. You are loved and valued by him. And in him, because of that, you are lovely and valuable. Third, prayer looks up. It's the Lord who lifts David's head. This picture of of the lifting of the head, it's a picture of confidence. You see, when you have God as your shield, when you have him as your glory, you never have to hide your head in fear or hang your head in shame. Ever. Ever. See, God is David's protector. He gives him worth. He lifts his head. He gives him hope. And so David, in trust, cries out to God. You see, when before, in verses 1 and 2, all he could see was the many, many, many enemies that surrounded him. Now, in verses 3 and 4, he sees God fills his vision. And so, so no matter how great or how many the foes are that surround you, in prayer we turn our focus to the one who is greater than all of them. So in verse four, David says, I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. Now think about that for a moment. Where is David as he's writing this psalm when he's remembering these moments? Where is David at this point? I mean, David is out in the wilderness hiding. He's left the city that's been his home. He's left the city where, where his family has lived. He's left the place where the symbol of God's presence, the Ark of the Covenant resides. That city's now overrun by David's enemies and he's an outcast. So where is God in this? Well, God is where he's always been, reigning on his holy hill. He's still reigning in Jerusalem. You see, Absalom may have taken the throne, but God is still running the kingdom. This is the beauty and the power of prayer. You see, God is always present to us, but in prayer we learn to be present and attentive to him. God is with David in the wilderness. Sometimes God feels far off, but he's always present to us. The question is, are we present and attentive to him? David knows who God is. He's holy. He isn't one to come to with sort of a casual familiarity. But in great distress, when fear hits, he cries out to the one who is greater than him. And God answers. He answers powerfully. And how does he answer? This is one of my favorite parts of this whole psalm. You see, God's answer to David's prayer, it's one of the most simple, astonishing Things that happens to you and me every day. It's the experience of sleep, of rest. You see, David might not be on his, his throne, but he knows that God is on his so he can rest. The, the two conditions of helplessness and trust bring the result of rest and sleep. Look at verses five and six. David says, "I lay down and I slept." I woke again for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid for many thousands of people who have set themselves all around me. He's like, I'm not going to be afraid of that anymore. Because all prior in the psalm, David has been saying, God, I have nothing else beside you. I'm helpless. I'm terrified. I don't deserve your help. All I can do is hope in you. And having said all that, he cries out to God and then he lays down and he goes to sleep. I think all of us at one point or another in our lives have known the pain of a sleepless night, the tossing, the turning. Your mind just keeps mulling over the same thoughts. Maybe it's, a, and it's an exam that, that everything is riding on. Uh, maybe it's a child, you, you can't get a hold of them on their cell phone and it's getting late and they should have been home by now. Maybe it's you have that performance review at work next week and, and it's, just, it's not certain how it's going to go. Um, for me, last Sunday night, it was uh, having a, kind of a recurring nightmare. I think I did it three times that night of, of working on the plumbing and just every pipe in the house disintegrating into dust. <laughs> but sometimes it's things far worse than plumbing that keeps us awake. I read an interview this week with uh, Chief Safety Eric Berry if you've been following that story, you know Eric had, had cancer and he was talking about the experience of, of chemo and, and battling that. And he said, there were so many times when I just didn't know if I would wake up tomorrow. I would be just so scared to go to sleep. And we, we've all known the pain of a sleepless night, of feeling the, the, these cares, these foes, these enemies pressing in around us. But sleep, it's such an ordinary part of life, and yet it's an amazing gift and miracle every time it happens. Because we don't really think about how incredible sleep is, but just listen to how one author describes it. I think he describes it so perfectly well, what, what happens when we sleep. He says, God sustains us in our sleep, but we take it for granted. But think about it. You're asleep, unconscious, dead to the world, yet you breathe, your heart pumps, Your organs operate, and he says the same God who sustains you in your sleep will sustain you in your difficulty. The great British author, uh, G.K. Chesterton, with his characteristic wit, wrote of sleep, the greatest act of faith a man can perform is the act we perform every night. You see, as Christians, we don't worship a deistic God who just sort of made a world and then pressed a button and then walked away and doesn't care about it. No, we serve the living and active God, Jesus, by whom all things were made and in whom all things hold together. God is as close to you right now as the heart that is beating in your chest and the air that is flowing in and out of your lungs, both now in this moment and when you sleep every night. And this is why David's outlook changes. His fear subsides. Those around him, um, of, of those around him, he goes away. And so in verse 7, his request that he, he gives the next morning when he wakes up is really less of a request of fear. And now it's kind of more of a battle cry. Listen to verse 7. He says, Arise, O Lord, save me, O God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek and you break the teeth of the wicked. This language of a rise, this was the same language that we saw in Moses' story that he would use when the pillar of cloud would lead the Israelites forward in the desert. It's less of a request and more of a battle cry of let's go forward. So let me just give you one practical step for this next week. If your prayer life is, is anemic or non-existent, just, just start here. Start tomorrow morning or or even tonight before you go to bed and, and just ask God this one simple thing. Just say, show me where I'm helpless. Show me where I'm helpless. Show me where I'm afraid. And begin to go to him with those things in prayer. Start there. Because it's only when we see those things clearly that we will ever know the rest that God provides in his grace. Why is that? Because salvation belongs to the Lord. See, when you read this psalm carefully, which I encourage you to do, spend some time this week, go back and read the psalm several times. When you read the psalm carefully, one of the things that jumps out at you is how many times the word many is used. It's used four times. We talked about that earlier. But what occurs, occurs even more than the word many in this psalm is God's name, his personal name, the Lord, Yahweh, It occurs once in every stanza because you see, there may be many enemies, but those many enemies are no match for the one true God. God's enemies are saying, there is no salvation for you, but God's people say again and again, salvation belongs to our God and this is the contrast. This is the fundamental contrast in the psalm. This, the, those two different cries that occur on, on the front and the back end. There's no salvation for you. Salvation belongs to the Lord. That's what was so moving to me in the psalm this week as I studied it. Salvation belongs to the, or, the Lord. And, and not in part, right? It's not, it's not like God kind of part of salvation belongs to the Lord. No, completely, wholly, fully to God alone belongs salvation. He doesn't owe it to us, but he freely offers it. I mean, really, fundamentally, that's what it means to be a Christian. If you're here this morning and and you're wondering, well, what does it really mean to be a Christian? What it means is to be able to say salvation belongs to the Lord alone, that I've come to the end of myself, that I have no hope of any kind of rescue on my own. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It's the refrain that echoes all through the Psalms, you hear that. It's through the pages of Scripture right up to the very end. It's the cry of God's people throughout the ages and for all time. In Revelation chapter 7, Revelation's is the, the last book of the Bible, the Apostle John, he, he records this scene. He says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every tribe, from every, every nation and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, and this is what they were saying, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. See, salvation belongs to the Lamb who was slain for us, who rescues us from our sin and from every enemy who would destroy us. You see, because he was crushed by his enemies, he is now our shield Because he was put to shame on the cross, he can now be our glory. Because he hung his head on the cross, he can now lift ours. Salvation belongs to the God who sits on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, would that come to be the, the cry, the bedrock truth that grounds every one of our lives. No matter where we're at in our journey with you this morning, whether this is our, our first time at church, and, and gosh, a friend brought us, and we don't even really know if we, if we buy this or we've been following Jesus for th- as long as we can remember. Would the bedrock cry of our hearts, the foundation stone of our lives be salvation belongs to the Lord. But we trust you so that when we become to the end of ourselves, and I pray that you bring us there regularly, we would turn to you in trust and hope, confidence that you will deliver us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, each week here at Christ Community at the Brookside Campus, we celebrate communion together. We celebrate a meal, the Lord's Supper, as a tangible reminder of the truth that we've just heard proclaimed from God's word, that that salvation belongs to the Lord. You see, Jesus didn't just leave us um, words or sermons to remember. He gave us an act, a meal that embodies the truth that salvation belongs to our God. And so as we come to communion this morning, we have this tangible reminder of the forgiveness of our sins where we get to see and taste and touch the gospel. And so during this time, um, we also have prayer available uh, near the sound booth. as a sign. And if you would like to pray with someone, even now in the service, there will be people there who would love to do that with you. And if you're newer here with us, let me just explain how we celebrate communion together as a church family. Um, first of all, you don't have to be a member of our church family to celebrate communion with us. If the cry of your heart is, salvation belongs to the Lord, come, you're welcome at the table. Um, if if you're not yet at that place and you're still questioning, I just invite you to use this space either to ask for prayer or just to pray silently to yourself. Uh, Say, God, show me. Pray that prayer. Show me where I'm helpless. Show me where I'm weak. Show me how you're working in my life because I'm confident that he is. We have four communion stations around the room. There's two here in the back, and there's two in the front. And this one here in the back has uh, gluten-free communion elements available if you uh, need that. So just come and gather in groups of four or five around uh, the tables or around the servers and take the bread, dip it into the cup, and then partake uh, together um, as a group there. Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed... On the night that he went, put it on the other side. Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, as he was going to the cross, he took bread, ordinary bread, and he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, and he said, take, eat, this is my body. And then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for you many for the forgiveness of sins. We must never miss that the core of the gospel is the good news that our sins can be forgiven. So come now to the table and taste and touch that good news that the forgiveness of sins has been brought on the cross. Come when you're ready.